0: Vem är du? Jag är döden. Kommer du för att tenta mig? Jag har redan länge gått vid din sida. Det vet jag. Är du beredd? Min kropp är rädd. Inte jag själv. In the opening scene of Ingmar Bergmans soulful cinematic masterpiece The Seventh Seal, we are confronted with a topic as old as the human spirit itself so firmly attached to our being that even saying it aloud feels a little bit redundant, a bit cheap. A cliché as tired as the act of talking about clichés themselves. This is a podcast, and I have to make it digestible somehow. And these are my opening 10 or so minutes where I get to talk about all of that pseudo-philosophical shit that framed the episode but would be too tiring to go on and on about throughout the whole thing. Let's have that discussion anyway. Because in all of the animal kingdom, the human race is uniquely aware of its own mortality. There are so many expressions that we've come up with to come to terms with the non-negotiable certainty of death. And still death comes off as kind of edgy. The unavoidability of death is so obvious. And yet, we don't like talking about it. We don't like talking about talking about it. And yet here's some fucking jackass on a podcast talking about it and talking about how we ought to talk about it and think about it. And we do think about it. We think about it all the fucking time. Even when it doesn't obviously occur to us that we do. But we do. Every day. As we perform our lives. But sure, yes, there is more to life than avoidance of death. I don't think we should see death as just an event that happens at the conclusion to somebody's life. Death is something more impersonal and abstract. And seeing death as just the malfunction of biological processes that sustain a living organism is just too cold. There's more to death than that. Death is good. Death informs life. Bergman's protagonist, the knight Antonius Bloch, after returning from the Crusades, struggles to find the point of living. And yet when Death approaches him right there on the beach of his plague-ridden homeland in the very opening scene, we learn the real answer to his question before it is even asked. Rather than accepting his mortality, our warrior challenges Death to a game of chess. A game he cannot win, surely, but one that is necessary to realize the value of life. Cold Death itself can promise no satisfaction, and so, driven by first knowledge, he is compelled to fight it. It is an ancient trope of heroic literature that the noblest fights are those that are fought against all odds. The idea that fate cannot be avoided but must be embraced, and having the foresight, or wisdom, to recognize fate where the illusion of choice appears. Do or do not, there is no try. By contrast, the antinatalist and weird fiction writer Thomas Ligotti makes a case for the opposite in his long essay, the conspiracy against the human race. Working from the position that all life inherently causes suffering, the conspiracy that Ligotti is referring to is the widely held belief that life is worth living. Ironically, for all its doom and gloom, I found Legati's conspiracy to be quite a fun read. If anything, I felt a bit invigorated reading it. There's something just a little askew about the notion that life, of all things, is sinister and that our hard-coded impulses to stay alive against all obstacles is an unspoken sort of tyranny. Legati thinks that we should joyously embrace our own extinction in the name of nonviolence and an end to suffering. In spite of some interesting and true observations from Ligotti's side, I simply don't think I agree. Ironically, if anything, the book made me more invigorated. Life does not need to be justified, it just is. And anybody with a truly holistic approach to life would of course acknowledge that the existence of suffering should serve as a reminder to enjoy life. There's something cartoonishly subterranean about Ligotti's point of view, a sort of inverted transhumanism where the limitations of our flesh can be overcome, not by some fantastic technological feat, but by killing ourselves and giving in to the emptiness. That is very weird indeed. It is, as I like to say, trollish. You can say plenty of good things about the troll, this ogre-like goblin creature that dwells in the margins of the human imagination, it sheds light on the ambivalent human relationship with nature, challenges our notions of the other, and inspires us to explore novel point of views. But the troll is no voice of reason, exactly. It does not have our most civilized and wholesome interests in mind, Trolls are sometimes those sardonic little voices that go, Yeah, why don't you just kill yourself instead, motherfucker? At least the more divine aspects of the human personality encourages us to aspire for something, to set us up for success, even if the byproducts of these aspirations have terrible consequences, like global ecological devastation, as we turn the planet into Swiss cheese. As that annoying song goes, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. But they neglect to put emphasis on one very important thing. That this parking lot was paved with good intentions, so that we had a place to leave our car when we went looking for a slice of heaven. Man, we really are fucked, aren't we? Unable to be content with what we have, always needing to see what's behind the next hilltop or right around the bend, forever being so goddamn curious. And life, being short, all too fucking short, would absolutely suck if it was eternal. And nevertheless, many of us just try to live on in the memory of the masses, preferring even the most idiotic of legacies just to be famous, over the humble honor of just drifting into obscurity, like most of our ancestors did. Edic poetry famously claims that the secret to eternal life is a good renown. Those are wise words, but... It's not technically true, is it? Maybe some selective amnesia is actually a good thing. You know, keeps your brain nice and tidy. As much as the dead outnumber the living. How many good people have been forgotten? When Roman ethnographers mention how their barbarian counterparts celebrated their ancient and legendary champions in songs, how many of these dudes and dudettes are still around us today? and through which mediums will our descendants of the deep future know us by? Those who have the eyes and ears to notice them will find ancient heroes in the most surprising of places. At least that's what happened to me about a year ago, when I came across a busker in a Brooklyn subway station. Commuters rushed in and out of the outgoing trains, paying little attention to the fellow by the staircase, plucking a large string instrument as incomprehensible verses rolled off his tongue. The instrument he played, a kind of lyre, called a kora, identified the man as a West African griot. A griot is a bard, a spiritual cousin of the Irish fili, the Anglo-Saxon scop, and the Norse Thulr and Skald. Back in the day, griots served as advisors, storytellers and oral historians. Princes, chieftains and warlords commissioned them to immortalize their memory and compose songs about their victories and heroic deeds. Who handed them down from teacher to student long after the clients themselves had faded away and been replaced by legendary poetic representations of themselves? Though the Empire of Mali has turned to dust, and tribal raids between the petty kingdoms of the Mandinka have long since ceased, the pursuits of their champions repeat in oral history. Recalling, for example, the hero Khalifa Ba, who charged through the bush like a lion on horseback. It falls on deaf ears. The audience does not register that Great Khalifa fights and dies again in the song of a Brooklyn subway busker who consummates an ancient oath every time he sings. Kalefa, the Avenger from Badora, has lain down. His bear is in Baria. His millet bear has been drunk. He was not killed by hunger, or shabby clothes, or trouble with women. Ah, life. Life will betray you. That which is standing will one day lie down. The energy here is similar to what we might read in the first lines of Beowulf at a different time half a world away. What both of these societies had in common is something that is entirely lacking from the daily life of a first world country in the modern world, such as the constant threat of violence and an aristocratic warrior class dominating many aspects of the culture. So far we've looked at some of the main sources for the idea of Valhalla in Norse pre-Christian mythology. Today we're going to look more at the cultural context and the archaeology of the Germanic warrior elite, to see if we can get a better understanding of the origins of the martial cult surrounding Odin, the king, and his retainers. My name is Erik Storesund, and you're listening to the Brute Norse Podcast, one of the few history podcasts where the F-bombs spew out like Greek fire over a Kievan Rus' raiding party. But most importantly, Brute Norse is where we walk backwards into the future. This is part 3 of my series on Valhalla, Heaven is a Place on Earth. one of the most important archaeological sources we have for life in the Viking era, or any of its preceding eras. You know, the the first thing that comes to mind. It's burials, right? So much of what we know about early Norse culture comes down to us only thanks to their funerary customs. And we know of more than 6,000 Viking era burials in Norway alone, each and every one of them. A tiny piece of the puzzle that helps us put together some sort of image of what society back then might have looked like. Whether just a hole in the ground containing a pot and some cremated bones, or a lavish ship burial that took weeks to prepare, the extreme variety of Scandinavian burial customs, even within the same culture and time frame, has a story to tell. It goes without saying that a lot of the stuff that we know about the material culture of Iron Age Scandinavia results from the fact that many of them chose to treat their loved ones to furnished burials. That's one reason why there's more Carolingian swords that have survived in Scandinavia than they did in areas that used to be part of the Frankish Empire as quite a few of these burials contain weapons and armaments, it seems that how Norse people treated their dead proves particularly enlightening when it comes to reconstructing the military aspects of their culture. Many trees have died to produce paper, on which scholars have written vast speculations about why these motherfuckers buried their dead as they did. Many perhaps even most, presuming that these furnishings reflect their belief in afterlives hinted at by their Christian descendants a couple of centuries later. Today, though, most archaeologists are a little bit more hesitant to say for sure that a sword provides conclusive evidence to the burial of an an esteemed warrior, for example, especially in such a highly violent society where, you know, where owning a sword was not specifically limited to a certain social class. Besides, the term weapon burial itself is not very helpful without clear criteria to go by. For example, it doesn't necessarily distinguish between a full set of weapons with a sword and a shield and and lances and that sort of thing and, say, an axe. It's not always possible to typologically distinguish whether an axe was intended to be used as a tool or a weapon or both. Or what if a burial has, like, one single arrow in it? This is a real life example with consequences for the whole uh, shield maiden debate. Is this one arrowhead uh, enough of a qualifying factor to consider this uh, weapon burial? If the answer is yes, then suddenly overnight to have 50 to 100% increase in the number of Danish female weapon burials. As I said, the term weapon burial is fuzzy to begin with, especially when you start using the term weapon burial as if it is synonymous with, uh, I don't know, a warrior burial. Warrior being, for lack of a better term, a professional title. And I'm going to reach for an example from my own native stomping ground of Karmøy in West Norway and the ship burial at Storhøy, where a motherfucker was buried in the year 779 with two swords, one single-edged and one double-edged, and one of a kind iron quiver if there was a bow, it did not survive, two spears, or we could say one spear and one lance, ironworking tools and two sets of gaming pieces made of amber and glass respectively, as well as a gold bracelet. You can probably say with some confidence that this guy was part of the military elite, but, but it's all spelt out very conspicuously. What about more subtle burials Would say, miniature weapons, like little swords or axes that appear votive or amulet-like or symbolic in their nature? What do those actually tell us about the dead and their relationship to military culture? Those could very well be used to express the same idea that a full set of weapons could. There are examples from the Merovingian period, that is the Norwegian term for the Vendel period, of toy swords made of iron from children's burials. Now think about that for a second. Why would anybody in their right mind waste those materials that could have been used to make an actual sword, actual knives, sharpened? And they took this expensive iron and turned it into a dull toy sword for their child. A child that ultimately dies and is buried with this sword. Both the making or commissioning of this sword and the placement of the sword in the burial suggests a wider symbolic universe, suggestive of great expectations for the child in question. In that regard, maybe the sword was not simply an expensive toy, but an investment into the child's future, a gesture deserving of the same materials as the real thing. Now, an iron object like that can still do some fucking damage in a child's hands. There are a few six-year-olds that I would not trust with what is basically a glorified crowbar. It would only be a matter of time before they bust somebody's kneecap, or gouge somebody's eye out, or whack the family dog. My point is that you don't always need full-on weapon burials to express the warrior culture that uh, these guys lived in. There's more than one way to skin a cat, and the Vikings should know because there is indeed evidence that the Vikings bred and kept cats for that exact purpose. Anyway, that's a topic probably best addressed in a different episode. It is by now a quite established idea that burials had a performative aspect to them. We can stress that whatever is in these burials was put there deliberately. But what about the things that they might have left out? What if someone was buried in a social context so secure that there was nothing gained from making a big expensive fuss about it? The aforementioned burial from Storhø is a great example of the opposite. We must consider that when burying a guy with two swords and a gold bracelet, that takes those artifacts out of circulation. It means that nobody in his friends or family are inheriting these objects. Gold rings were powerful symbols of personal alliances and oaths between lord and retainer. What does it mean when the man is buried with it? It means that those obligations go with him, wherever he goes next. But that may also suggest that these oaths do not apply to his children. In Norway, during the Roman Iron Age, there's a specific kind of ring, a finger ring, called serpent-headed rings, that are often found in archaeological contexts broken into pieces. Not like later Viking Age hacksilver at all. These have been deliberately destroyed before they were buried, presumably to signify such a political change. The death of an oath-sworn man with a powerful family network was unless properly handled, potentially a very dangerous thing. I think Tove Jansson, the creator of the Moomin books, once said something to the effect that writing is also about what is left to the imagination. Some things are just best said by not spelling them out. And those gestures are not immediately available to archaeology, because what we see, at least on the surface, are all those things that are written out in huge, bold letters, Gaming pieces, sword, gold, big man. So this guy played board games. How are we supposed to interpret that? A popular pastime for the privileged who had time for it a surplus activity, leisure. Maybe he had some particular affection for this game. Who knows? But why then? Why do swords and spears and gaming pieces so often coincide with each other in burials? Ah, the third century to the 11th centuries AD. Big gamer moment. But what about when it's just really subtle. Like, say you have an inhumation with just one single gaming piece cleverly positioned somewhere in the grave. There are nuances to Scandinavian burial customs where we just don't understand what the fuck is going on. And it's the mystery of the unmentioned things that are often the most tantalizing here. It is fair to say that a lot is left to the imagination about just how big an overlap there was between aristocratic life and afterlife. Warriors might have been emblematic of it, but there were only one aspect of courtly culture in the Iron Age. Like, where the hell does the queen of the house go? Queen Veltheo in Beowulf is every bit a part of that complex as her husband Hrothgar or Beowulf himself is. The sources offer us no suggestion, only that Valhalla has Valkyries who perform tasks similar to that which the daughters or servant-girls of the Lord would do at the feast. The guests are, at least as far as we can tell, exclusively male. In most Scandinavian weapon burials, we are usually looking at graves containing the remains of one or two people, maybe three people at the most. This can be husband and wife, master and slave, sometimes children are present. Because the dead don't really bury themselves, we like to assume that the construction and furnishing of the grave somehow reflects the person's identity and status in life. But for reasons already mentioned, even well-furnished weapon burials may not tell us much about what the community expected of that person's afterlife. But we may assume that the presence of weapons or certain animals such as horses and birds are intended to tell some sort of story about the person's social identity. It is quite likely that some of those who received weapon burials and actually were warriors in their life were expected to have that status transposed onto the afterlife. Sometimes the furnishings of a grave can form recurring patterns that we see all over the board, but individual items like a spindle or a sword or a box or a peacock feather, we don't actually know what each of those items may have been supposed to represent. It's not exactly clear how burials reflect the afterlife in terms of social organization and network, of course, because most of these graves contain one individual. They could, for all we know, simply be expected to go and join their ancestors, or go to the gloomy and dark halls of Hel, ruled by its namesake goddess of death. The Swedish archaeologist Andreas Norberg one of my main sources for this episode points out quite intelligently that most people, and in fact most cultures, have very vague ideas about what happens when you die. We should really expect some of the same from the Norse, even though medieval chroniclers like Snorri Sturluson suggest the contrary. For an analogy, we could probably look at another feno culture. The Sami, for example, believed in an afterlife where nothing was lacking in terms of material security, but on the other side, it was extremely boring. They also believed in a second layer of death, a social death that occurs when the individual is forgotten. Perhaps Norse pagans had a similar concept, because after all, it was an oral culture obsessed with commemoration. As the Norse poem Håvamål says, cattle die, kinsmen die, and you will die as well. The one thing that does not die is the reputation of the dead. But fame, of course, relies on living memory. Among the countless forgotten dead of the Nordic Iron Age are those who were buried in the 8th century ship burials in Salme on the Isle of Saarema in Estonia. These were two mass graves that contained the remains of at least 41 Scandinavian individuals, and unlike many other prehistoric mass graves, they seem to have been dug by their own folks. They may have been associated with some of the very first Viking raids, before ill fortune forced their comrades to bury them on foreign shores. I use the term burial a little bit loosely here because neither of these boat graves were put in mounds, as we might expect. Instead, they were covered by sand, either haphazardly shoveled over them by the survivors, or buried by a winter storm shortly after the funerary rites. Both of these burials reek of what we might call crisis ritual. Usually, a burial might contain pots and pans, household items, and so forth. The lack of domestic items and furnishing probably reflect that they did not have access to them because they were far from home, and the surviving crews were hard-pressed on time. It is possible that the locals allowed them time to care for their dead, and then expected them to fuck off from once they came immediately afterwards. The haphazard yet thoughtful state of these mass graves suggests that they only had time to emphasize what they found most important. Therefore, we should pay close attention to how they decided to organize these burials. The boat grave we call Salme 1 was a speedy military rowing vessel, which had 12 piers of oars. 12 piers of oars means it would have taken 24 rowers to man all of them. With twice that number, they could have kept the vessel going day and night by rowing in shifts, which was probably the convention during these early Viking raids. As much as we like to imagine Vikings at their target destination, fighting, plundering, or trading, the vast majority of the Viking voyage, especially in those early days, would have consisted of rowing tremendous distances. It has even been suggested that the term Viking itself actually meant something along the lines of shifter, referring to the fact that the Viking lifestyle was dominated by these laborious, alternating rowing sessions spanning across days, or even weeks. In other words, these guys were jacked as hell. Hot tip for the Jim goon demographic of my listeners. Now, the ship burial in question, Salma 1, contained the remains of seven crew members, apparently placed so that they were sitting upright and side by side, since the position of their bones suggested that some of them were reclining or leaning over or had taken a nosedive shortly after they were propped up, with the younger ones up front and the older, presumably more experienced veterans sitting behind them in the rear end of the boat. Among the animals were the butchered remains of cattle, and also two decapitated hawks, apparently part of the funerary ritual, and, should I say, an animal with Odinic connotations. They had no injuries consistent with violent death, but may have drowned or succumbed to hypothermia. The other ship, Salma II, contained the skeletal remains of 34, rather tall men, carefully stacked on top of each other in four layers like a human Jenga covered by a thatch of shields and possibly the ship's sail. They carried plenty of signs of physical trauma and violent death. Some decapitated, many with various stab wounds, another had suffered an axe blow to the face, and a severed arm was chopped up into three pieces. The grave contained a whopping forty swords, both single and double-edged, many of which had gilt and garnet-encrusted bronze pommels and scabbard fittings many of which were decorated in Salin's so-called Style 2, a zoomorphic art style emblematic of the mid-Vendel era. We're talking like 7th century, and Salma 1 and 2 are both from the mid-8th century, which means that some of the swords were clearly antique and may have been highly prized heirlooms handed down across generations within Sweden's warrior elite. A total of 326 gaming pieces made of cattle, whalebone, and walrus ivory were scattered between the bodies and one individual perhaps the most high-ranking leader was buried surrounded by his weapon brothers in the center of one of the top layers with a king gaming piece placed in his mouth salma 1 and 2 are eerily unique especially for their communal nature whoever buried these men wanted to stress their identity as members of a comitatus that is to say a band of warriors and to highlight the shared fate that they suffered By stressing their rank and common identity in these burials, perhaps they hoped that these men would go on to feast and fight and play their games of war in some elevated location, in some grand hall in the presence of the gods, and where the bitter losses of that high-stakes game of war are made fair. And there is some evidence to suggest that the Vikings had some questions regarding the fairness of battlefield death, despite the promise of a glorified afterlife. In the Edic poem Loka Sena, which may or may not be a parody of pre-Christian religious beliefs, the god Loki crashes a drinking party to confront the gods about their various shortcomings and indecencies. All of these faults are more or less characteristic of their actual behaviors. We can easily imagine that they would do these things. For example, Freyr, the divine lover boy, is accused of picking hoes before bros, so to speak, to the detriment of the divine collective. While the most beautiful goddess Freya is called a farting brotherfucker. But I consider myself a fairly open-minded guy, and those accusations are of no concern to us here. Rather, let's pay attention to Loki's accusations against Odin in stanza 22. Here's Loki speaking. Thegi Odin, thou kunnit aldrig deila hvig með verum. Oftu kaffed thaym er thou geva skyldira inom slavurum sigr. Shut up, Odin. You could never judge war evenly between men. You've often given to those who you were not supposed to. Victory to the dull. So what he's basically saying is that Odin is running a rigged game where the most able warriors are being subverted, consequently giving victory to those who do not deserve it. So, facing such a damning accusation, what does Odin have to say to his defense? Actually, he gives a full confession. He denies absolutely nothing. Nor do any of the other gods, they just change the subject. It is an obvious paradox this notion that Odin selects only the best warriors to join him in Valhalla, because reasonably, victory should be reserved for those who are best prepared. The real and the ideal do not add up. And it's not as if Norse culture had any sympathy for the defeated enemies either. Norse poetry frequently demeans the enemy and invokes strong, almost Freudian metaphors of sexual submission, going as far as referring to defeated enemies as unmanly, sodomite cowards, invoking defamatory terms like the Old Norse concept of ergi. The losing party is not just physically inferior, they are quite literally the unworthy bitches of the victors. You may remember Haraldskvida from part 1 in this series, the 9th-century skaldic poem commemorating King Harald's conquest of Norway, where the cowering defeated are described as if wagging their asses in fearful submission before the terrible force of the victorious army, who pelt their backs with stones. The adjectives used to describe the inferiority of the enemies represent inversions of how the ideal male warrior is supposed to be described. They are dull instead of sharp, and they are soft and moist instead of hard and firm. In modern discussions about guns, it is often said that the weapon represents the penis. Well, in Norse warrior ideology, one might say that it is the penis that represents the weapon. Well, anyway, what Loki suggests here turns it all upside down. What if the unmanly men are actually those who are still alive to claim the bounty, and those who, by dying on the battlefield, fail to protect the interests of their families and kings and warlords are spirited away to another dimension, while the effeminate riffraff is allowed to go forward and carry out their dishonorable mission? What incentive is there to get good or get wrecked, as the kids say, if the game is already rigged? In a fucked-up way, it makes sense, because Loki's next accusation against Odin regards the unmanliness of his wizardly ways, implying a certain degree of sexual transgression. It is strange how Viking-era Scandinavians could, on the one hand, enforce extremely rigid and even unrealistic gender roles, while they also constantly entertained a fascination with their inversion, often in very carnivalesque and bizarre ways. It is both ironic and witty to imagine the god of kings and the ultra-masculine warrior retinue as capable of manifesting as a gender-bending bum. Traits that are not otherwise celebrated in Norse society, at least not in any public fashion, but if it had to be one deity, then certainly Odin. His divinity gave him a free pass to break some of Norse culture's most deeply ingrained taboos, and therein lies the humor and wit of Norse mythology. Odin was, after all, a highly deceitful and ambiguous god. A god who deceives and betrays his favorites, and is in no way too shy to game the system. It goes to show that there is really no fairness on the battlefield, and Odin is willing to admit it. Whether or not we accept Lucasena as a genuine pre-Christian source, which I actually tend to believe, the paradox must also have dawned on the warrior elites, who celebrated their victories in luxurious surroundings in the earthly counterparts to the heavenly Mead Hall of Valhalla. This is where that peculiar Germanic fatalism comes in handy. Fate favors the bold, and never is it more honorable to continue fighting than when the game is stacked against you. Of course, very few people are so unsympathetic that they would actually say that the reason why their brother or son died on the battlefield was because they were inferior. You know, that simply doesn't seem to be in our nature. In the simplified dichotomy of honor and shame, victory is nominally honorable while defeat is nominally shameful, even though, of course, it is unavoidable that at least one side loses. The Vikings were routinely guilty of acts abroad that their own local communities did not tolerate legally, and must have demanded, I presume, some kind of moral justification. And nevertheless, it is implied in certain sources, such as the skaldic poem Mall, that all of these warriors go to the same place. It's almost as if Eric Bloodaxe's wholesale slaughter of his enemies is a recruitment strategy. But in that case, who's really the unmanly man here? I assume that they were able to compartmentalize these contrary emotions and ideas, that there was one standard for the villainous them and another standard for the heroic us. We could perhaps even imagine ideas akin to ancient Greek notions of manly and unmanly battle death, where the difference is between dying on your back and dying on your stomach. The generalization holds that those who die falling backwards are facing the enemy, while those who flee, dishonorably, fall on their stomach and are mortally wounded from behind. Old Norse law speaks about the Klumhog, or shameful hue, in which a man wounds another man's buttocks. This was actually highly illegal and was considered to be just about as damaging to a man's sanctity as castration. Anyway, the real question is, how may battlefield dehumanization and belief in shameful battle death have affected Old Norse perceptions of Valhalla? As we know from Snorri as well as popular culture, we tend to imagine Valhalla as almost a brotherhood of equal warriors. However, we may assume that some of the social inequalities of this world also carried into the next, and there is some evidence to suggest that this also applied to the notions of the warrior afterlife. The 10th century Byzantine historian Leo the Deacon provides an odd account of the afterlife beliefs of the Kievan Rus, who consisted at least partially of Scandinavian settlers in modern Russia and Ukraine. The Rus', Leo alleges, practiced the sort of seppuku-like form of battlefield suicide as a last resort when all seemed doomed. The reason behind this is rather interesting. Let me read you the passage in question. Never up until now had they surrendered to the enemy when defeated. But when they lose hope of safety, they drive their swords into their vital parts and thus kill themselves. And they do this because of the following belief. They say that if they are killed in battle by the enemy, then after their death and the separation of their souls from their bodies, they will serve their slayers in Hades. They dread such servitude, and, hating to wait upon those who have killed them, inflict death upon themselves with their own hands. So, at least according to Leo the Deacon, the Rus believed in an afterlife where the victims were slaves and servants of the warriors who killed them. Of course, that provides no evidence whatsoever that that was a common belief in Scandinavia at the time. But actually, eddic poetry does mention something along these lines. In Helgakviða Hundingsbana II, aka the second lay of Helgi Hundingsbane, the hero Helgi dies and goes to Valhalla, where he is greeted by Odin, who even invites him to help him govern the hall. At that point, Helgi immediately turns to a man called Hunding. This is the exact same man that he killed to earn his name. He says, "Þú skalt hundingr, mani fótlaugeta fúna kynda." hunda binda, hesta gäta, geva svinum other sova gangir. You shall, Hunding, to every man a footbath give, and light the fires, bind the dogs, tend the horses, and feed slop to the pigs, before you go to sleep. What is interesting is that the poem refers to Hunding as a king in his life, but evidently, having died in battle, he is now a servant in Valhalla to the man who killed him. This is very different from how kings are received in other poems. The legendary Ragnar Lodbrok in Krokumol faces death eagerly, expecting to sit in the high seat, sharing drinks of ale with the gods. And then of course you have the kings Harald and Håkon, who we mentioned in part 1, who are not only received as equals, but are even treated to supervisor positions on account of their high status. This of course indicates that there were many different nuances to Valhalla even in the Viking Age. Just to reiterate a couple of points that I probably made in part one. Death in battle is commonly portrayed as the price of admission into Valhalla. However, Valhalla as a concept was most likely limited to a certain group within Norse culture and society, and therefore it is unlikely that just any fool who died in combat was expected to go there. Rather, it might have been specifically reserved for people born and raised in the military aristocracy, who were distinct from the rest of the population. When we see that these martial analogies are transposed to the wider male population, this is because Norse culture regarded the warrior image as a masculine ideal. In Icelandic sagas, for example, ill-tempered sheep farmers refer to themselves casually as warriors all the time, even though many of them probably never lived that sort of lifestyle. But that could also be explained by the fact that many Viking-age Icelandic families originally belonged to the Norwegian aristocracy before they resettled and slowly wasted all their finances. The relatively austere conditions of the Icelandic chieftain compared to his Scandinavian counterparts may have significantly lowered the bar to define what constituted a warrior in that society. And even then, we're not really talking about the intrigue or the lavish lifestyle that the complex of Valhalla seems to belong to. That is to say, a military mead hall culture with certain archaic traits that... Predates the Icelandic settlement by several hundred years. Which may seem to stand in contradiction to the source critical fact that Valhalla only explicitly appears in our sources from the mid 10th century and onwards. But even having said that, dying in battle, quite counterintuitively, is not exactly the easiest thing to achieve, insofar that the goal was not to die for your warlord, but to make the other bastards die for theirs. Okay, so. Dying in battle was an ever-present possibility that came with the contract of participating in this sort of social environment. But you kind of have to think of it as a high-risk work hazard or something along those lines, rather than the goal or... I suppose we could regard war death as a necessary byproduct of the military politics of Iron Age Scandinavia, let's put it that way. After all, people didn't join the retinues to die, but to reap the rewards that such a lifestyle offered, often with the goal of establishing the social standing and wealth needed to retire from warfare, get married, and raise little warriors of your own, who will grow up and come of age in that warrior culture, hopefully join the retinue of a warrior prince just like you did when you were young, do a bit of fighting and feasting, which of course adds even more to your dynastic prestige. Eventually your son will probably have to find a bride of comparable social status, And then, as Ovid says in The Art of Love, you know what happens next. Now there's a big if. A certain uncertainty hanging in the air. What happens if you fail to produce any sons? Well, generations of institutionalized piracy means that your daughters are likely to be wed off to the sons of your old army mates. Often, daughters were powerful players who could go where even the most phallic aggressive warriors could not penetrate, as princesses, queens, the adhesive of interdynastic alliances. Just like the gaming pieces that often follow elite warrior burials, the Iron Age aristocracy itself was a complex game, full of clever strategies and deceptions. And sometimes, just like with Odin in Valhalla, the game is entirely rigged. There's something just a little bit off in the culture depicted in Valhalla that does not quite resound with the Viking Age political reality. At least in Viking-era Norway, you have the factor of Christianization and national unification to consider. There was a lot of warfare going on, but it was more a sort of warfare concerned with eliminating opposition than actually propagating the lifestyle of the warrior elite, which is the... Tribal ideology of warfare that we see in Beowulf and the ideology that we see in Valhalla as well It doesn't necessarily rule out the coexistence of all these elements, but hear me out for a second If you're in any way familiar with Scandinavian prehistory, you'll know that the one distinguishing hallmark of the Viking era is that systematic military violence really began to turn outwards. While some opportunistic warlords had always looked beyond the confines of Scandinavia, this ambition was only fully realized on a continental scale with the dawn of the Viking Age. It is really ship technology that made the Viking Age the Viking Age. While it is true that Germanic piracy itself went back hundreds of years before the Scandinavian Vikings, it was really the Viking ships that made it possible to no longer have to deal with your neighbors in the same way as before. Former or future enemies often shared the same table, and might even be familiar with each other's respective family histories. Whereas enemies had formerly often been renowned and, at least according to themselves, proud and ancient lineages of your own culture, more or less, it was now easier than ever to just fuck off to foreign lands and terrorize people who had no idea who you were and really could not care less. Now don't get me wrong, straight-up Viking-style piracy would have provided excellent fertile ground, economically speaking, for the sort of culture depicted in Valhalla, but we have to consider that this is a mutation in the direction of a much more extroverted raiding economy. Even when we compare the lavish and ornate war gear of Scandinavians from the late Roman period all up to the end of the Vendel period, it is striking how simple Viking-era weapons and armor looks in comparison as if there is a trend towards a more functional idea of what an army is supposed to look like. In spite of this, Skaldic poets hold on to tropes and images that are materially passé. In Håkon the prelude to King Håkon's trip to Valhalla depicts him wearing a golden helmet that seems much more at home in Vendel era material culture or in Beowulf than is suitable from what we know from Viking-era archaeology. You don't need a vendel style crested helmet with garnet-inlaid eyebrows to raid an Irish monastery. What you use is a gold-plated sword handle if you're not looking to impress the opposing army. No Anglo-Saxon was ever going to defect to the Danish heathens like a young aristocrat might do in barbarian Germania, or within vendel era Scandinavia, for that matter. But invoking that sort of ancient opulence might serve a different mythological performative function. The way that Germanic heroic poetry presents warfare encourages the presumption of a kind of noble, lofty, sporty kind of warfare where battles are basically just a round of polo before drinks. It is possible that this sort of warfare was idealized in Viking-era Scandinavia, even though the reality had developed to become quite different. Maybe they even looked longingly back at the heroic age with which they sought to connect a goal which was achieved through the Mead Hall communion of public drinking and gift-giving rituals and mythologically justified warrior cult. Though, truthfully speaking, war was probably never quite as glamorous as the gold-tinted glasses of Germanic heroic ideology and the Mead Hall culture liked to depict it. War was justified religiously, and Norse mythology even contains fragments of a myth that apparently teaches mankind how wars are supposed to be opened, fought, and concluded in the form of the war between the divine families of the Æsir and the Wanir, which ends with a mutual exchange of hostages that are integrated into their respective societies. Significantly, the peace treaty flows over into the myth of the meat of poetry, a reminder of the strong presence of poetry and alcohol in the peacetime activities of the warrior elite. Mutual exchange of hostages where young aristocrats are sent to live with the formerly opposing forces is a well-attested historical practice. The most famous and maybe extreme example would be Arminius, a prince of the Germanic tribe known as the Cherusci, who grew up in the Roman Empire, where he rose to the status of equites or knight in modern parlay. What is interesting is that Arminius would later use his status and know-how that he learned from the Romans to defeat them at the Battle of Teutoburg Forest, which is generally blamed for halting Roman expansion into the Germanic heartlands. This was in the 1st century AD, so much earlier than most of the material we're actually tackling here. But it's striking how certain ancient Roman depictions of Germanic aristocracy can be compared to Norse poems that were admitted to parchment over a thousand years later. And in between the two we find old high German texts like Lied and the old English Beowulf, for example. While Beowulf takes place in an opulent subculture of feasting and fighting and boasting about fighting while you feast. We gotta imagine that heroic legendary poems like Beowulf were performed in exactly the sort of feasts that the poem itself describes. We're talking about a warrior culture narcissistically immersed in idealizations of itself. Tacitus, in his description of Germanic society from the 1st century AD, makes it sound as if Germanic elites were engulfed in a continuous bar crawl when they weren't busy fighting each other. Even with the Romans, there are a few parallels. The Roman Empire had a specific ritual for the declaration of war, where a priest from the college of the Fetiales was summoned to the border for the express purpose of throwing a spear into enemy territory. While in the Norse myth of the prototypical war between the Aesir and the Wanir, Odin initiates the conflict by throwing a spear over the enemy army. Elsewhere in the literature, there is a connection between dedicating someone to Odin and the act of stabbing or throwing a spear. Many will recall how Odin in the Hovamol hangs and impales himself with a spear, and thereby gives himself to himself, as he says. This might be regarded as a prototypical act of sacrifice. In Gautrek's saga, which you might recall from part 1, one of its anti-heroes, Starkad, is bamboozled by his foster father into performing a mock sacrifice of his best friend to Odin. When he says the magic words, I give you to Odin, and pokes his buddy with a reed, helpfully provided by his foster daddy, the reed magically transforms into a spear, and straight up impales his childhood friend. Surprise, surprise, his foster father was actually Odin all along. Now there's a fragment where the Danish legendary king Harald Wartooth declares before a battle, and I quote, All those war dead who fall on this plain I give to Odin. Then, of course, is the famous passage from Styrbiarnad Fotr where Eric the Victorious chucks a spear over the enemy army and declares Odin o idr Allah. Odin owns ye all. Now, the Norse sources, compared with the Roman practice of uh, throwing a spear across the enemy border, could be dismissed as a coincidence. After all, Norse texts were written much later than the context they claim to describe. But things line up in an odd fashion. Bede recounts a story from the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons, in which a former pagan priest denounces his paganism by riding up to the idols and throwing a spear straight into the temple wall, before professing his worship of the one true God, and ordering his men to destroy the temple. Sounds like an oddly specific set of actions to include on Bede's account, don't you think? And Andreas Norberg argues that this was probably no spontaneous act, but a way to use the symbolic language and rites of the pagan warrior cult to further Christianity. After all, these men saw Christ not as a meek carpenter from Galilee, but a warrior, and identified the image of Jesus and his disciples as that of the prince and his retainers. Hold on to that thought, because we're not done with the cross-pollination of pagan warrior ideology and Germanic Christianity quite yet. If all we had were these heroic and mythological texts, it would be easy to take this elevated view of warfare entirely seriously, However, we do have archaeological evidence to suggest a far less glamorous reality. Indicating the existence, not only of this cocktail variety of warfare by and for the aristocratic elite, but massacres, atrocities, expansionism, in other words, total war. Things that the military soap opera of Germanic heroic legend neglects to mention, or at the very least, heavily tones down. Heroic poetry eagerly describes how named champions of noble heritage meet face-to-face on the battlefield, exchanging blows and conversations in antagonistic camaraderie. But they do not describe how an army in the 5th century fell upon the ringfort of Sandby Bog in Sweden and eradicated the entire community within it, indiscriminately executing all the males, whether they were infants, children, teenagers, or grown men. No skeletal remains pertaining to the feminine sex have so far been recovered from Sandby Bogue, and so the fate of any women and girls on the site is yet to be explained. The migration period and the Viking periods respectively were generally periods of upheaval chock full of religious, social, economic, medical, just about any sort of instability that you can imagine. Demographic crisis caused by disease, famine and war led to the demise of proto-Norse language and the emergence of early Old Norse. By the Vendal period, it appears as if the main dynasties of Scandinavia had successfully eradicated much of their competition and maintained a firm grip on their petty kingdoms until the Viking Age came and once again shook things up a bit. Obviously, none of these eras are mutually distinct units and we have to see them as part of a wider continuum. We've seen that to understand Valhalla, Not only do we need to understand the context of Old Norse literature in the Middle Ages, we should also understand the historical context of the Vikings as well as that of their ancestors. What we've seen depicted so far takes place in what scholars have come to know by terms such as Mead hall culture or the aristocratic hall culture, which is a way to describe some of the key common denominators shared by Iron Age Germanic aristocracy from the beginning to the end of the first millennium of the Common Era. In the first 2 or 3 centuries AD, Germanic society undergoes a process of stratification increasingly centered around charismatic military kleptocrats who were the forerunners to early medieval kings, of whom we spoke about in the Barbarian Warlords of Free Germania episodes, paving way for a dedicated aristocratic class with war as its main identity marker which coincides with the emergence of large royal halls, initially as dwellings, and then later as separate ceremonial buildings associated with centers of power. In Scandinavia, those specifically ceremonial halls start to appear in the 4th and 5th centuries, and were often placed on ridges, hills, and open plateaus in the landscape to assert architectural dominance. There are several instances of Royal Halls, identified in archaeological contexts, that quite obviously burnt to the ground. Some of these might have been accidental, but there is an underlying suspicion that many of these were probably burnt down deliberately. These halls were the temples of the martial cult, when you think about it. If we're looking for the model of Valhalla, these are it. As the political and religious center of an opposing army, these halls were also obvious targets. And their destruction effectively symbolizes the destruction of the cosmological center of your enemies. Kind of reminds us of the destruction of the holy site at the hands of that spear-throwing Anglo-Saxon convert, doesn't it? I believe it was the hall from Högum in Sweden, where human remains were scattered around not very far from the apparent entrance of the hall, and appeared to have been killed as they fled it. They were simply left to decay in the open, despite the fact that the area was relatively densely populated, and people must have passed this property quite habitually. The ruins of the estate were left completely untouched, and the people associated with that fallen dynasty were untouchable and left unburied. You might say that if you're a king, a warlord, destroying the hall, the center of your enemy's power, the nexus of their cultural, economic, and religious prestige, was a profoundly symbolic demonstration, with mythic, ideological backing, reminiscent of how the Vanir destroyed the walls of the Hall of the Aesir in the Divine War, as it is described in the Eddic poem, Wolespoe. With that sort of mythological backing, vandalizing the enemy hall seems indistinguishable from religious ritual for all intents and purposes. From the perspective of the professional warrior aristocracy, the hall symbolizes order and the power concentration necessary to enforce it. Hence, it is unsurprising that Odin, with his hall and his warriors, the Einherjar, came to play an essential role in Norse eschatology. Where not only must the king protect the people from predatory armies, but defend the universe itself from the forces of chaos and entropy, at the very end of the world. The real question is, however, how far back can we track the notion of Odin's Hall as a transcendent and even heavenly place? If we go by political organization and lifestyle alone, in order to establish the earliest possible dating for Valhalla, or notions akin to Valhalla, since it is unlikely to have carried that name, it should not be older than the professionalization of the Germanic military, and so unlikely to be older than, say, the migration era. But lacking any sources to corroborate this, it would of course be speculation, and very charitable speculation at that. It seems the most credible that this part of the Cult of Odin grew out of the Meat Hall culture, and not the other way around. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Odin lacked a connection to warfare or the dead prior to this hypothetical development. Judging from Roman sources who identified him with the god Mercury, Odin, or rather his proto-Germanic precursor, Wodanas, appears to have enjoyed some prominence among the warbands of continental Germania at the dawn of the Common Era. But why was he specifically associated with Mercury, the messenger of the gods? Odin is not really known for his connection to trade, as Mercury was, and the function of divine messenger does not really befit Odin either. And Mercury, on his end, is not really associated with warfare. Now, there is something to say of their mutual traits. They're both gods of wanderers, tricksters, thieves, luck and speech. And just as Mercury guides the souls of the dead to the underworld, Odin is certainly known to nudge a soul or two over to the other side. It is possible that this is the reason why the Romans came to associate Wodanaz with Mercury and vice versa, allowing the day of Mercury, Dies Mercurii, to become our Wednesday. Now the name Wodanaz has no cognates in other European mythologies, much less Mercurius, and so it is most reasonable to assume that Wodanaz was more or less a Germanic invention. However, Wodanaz, Woden, Wotan, Odin, whatever you want to call him, is not necessarily totally unique either. Some scholars, prominently Priscilla Kershaw in The One-Eyed God, Odin and the Germanic Menorbunde, have argued convincingly for a deeper Indo-European connection. By ways of comparative mythology, we can probably conclude that he must have inherited several archaic traits from an older deity whose name we do not really know, but may have been worshipped among the proto-Indo-Europeans as early as 3000 BCE. This deity was a god of warbands and bandits, associated with young men, ancestors and ghosts and wolves and dogs, cattle raids and ecstatic frenzy, or so it might seem at least. In The One-Eyed God, Kershaw takes us back in time to an Indo-European cultural institution called the Koryos, which is the direct etymological ancestor to the Scandinavian hag and German her, meaning army. But this was no army of the sort that we are used to. The cognate verb heria, meaning to ravage, plunder, devastate, tells you everything you need to know about the warfare that they engaged in. This was war as hooliganism and razzia, and the armies in question were bands of adolescent freemen ritually exiled from their community in a warrior coming-of-age ritual, where they lived out with the wild animals in the wilderness, like wolves and dogs themselves, subsiding on plunder and cattle raids, and finding their brides by kidnapping. By the time Tacitus, in the first century of the Common Era wrote his treatise on the Germanic peoples, he notes how the Germanic tribes did not engage in any professional military training, but gained military experience through raiding parties. Here is Wodanaz not as a god of the distinguished military elite, but Wodanaz as god of the institutionalized riffraff that preceded it for centuries of the wild young who lived for a while in the margins of society and were apparently identified with the vengeful spirits of the ancestors who came back to haunt the living around the time of the winter solstice. It's been suggested that these are the spiritual precursors to the Germanic animal warriors, Norse berserkers and Ulfhednar, whom Snorri describes as being galnir sem hundar edavargar mad as hounds or wolves, which itself recalls the famous passage from Volsunga Saga, where the young warrior-outlaws Sigmundr and Sinfjotli don a pair of cursed wolf-skins, which they steal from two sleeping individuals, whom the saga describes as the sons of kings. And once they put them on, they are suddenly unable to take them off, but take on the nature of wolves and howl then, the saga says, they ran into the woods and killed many men. And Damn near killed each other too. Kershaw argues for a connection between these and the manifold expressions of the wild hunt in European folklore, called Uskurea in Scandinavia and Das Wutende Herr in Germany. A host of goblins or ghosts that haunted the countryside during auspicious seasons, harassing the living under the leadership of some manner of mythological or legendary figure, sometimes perhaps Wotan or Odin himself. And as I already said, Kershaw makes a case for that exact connection, and in doing so attempts to rehabilitate the research of the disgraced Austrian philologist Otto Höfler and his magnum opus Kultische Geheimbunde des Germanen, or The Cultic Secret Societies of the Germanic Peoples, in which Höfler argued, among other things, for a direct continuity between Odin's spectral army, Germanic warrior cult, and the masked seasonal processions found in the folklore of Germany and elsewhere. She even brings to attention a peculiar practice of determining the leader of the Koryos by means of a game of chance. And though this is a stretch, I find it impossible not to let the mind wander to the fixation of the Germanic warrior elites with board games. Not only as a luxurious pastime, but a military statement and maybe even yet an apotropaic or divinatory technique, especially considering that oracles and sacrifices in Germanic and Norse society were often determined by the drawing of lots. Again, this is commonly explained as a Roman influence on Germanic auxiliaries who went back into Scandinavia and later became the elites, but it's interesting nonetheless. Even if Otto Höflow may have gone too far in his imaginative theory of millennia-old Odinic secret societies, the material he presents is in itself interesting, and one must really wonder if there's not some manner of cross-pollination between certain motifs of German folklore where dead kings like Barbarossa and Charlemagne lie sleeping in sacred mountains with their armies, awaiting the coming of the Antichrist, and notions of Odin and the Einherjar Resting, training, and feasting, awaiting the coming war between the forces of chaos and order. We may, for example, raise these questions when we see the Norse lays of the hero Helgi Hundingsbane, where he rides out of Valhalla with his retainers to the amazement of the peasantry he encounters, who ask if his appearance in the world of the living means that they have reached the end of the world. It would be simple and easy to draw the convenient conclusion that the Christian legends must be based on older pagan material. Not only would it be convenient to accept such a conclusion, but it would also be lazy. For in doing so, I would have to draw conclusions that go counter to what many of these sources actually imply. While Odin and his connection to the Germanic warband is surely ancient, we've kind of gauged what scholars might call the terminus post quem, That is to say, the earliest possible dating for the concept of Valhalla as we know it. Valhalla must come from the Mead Hall culture that emerged as a result of developments in the late Roman Iron Age. Possibly at any point later than that, but highly unlikely at any point earlier. But those developments, that is the diffusion of a specific aristocratic class consisting of warrior professionals, does not sufficiently explain the need to make the Hall heavenly, to make it such a transcendent, paradise-like place, with a purpose completely adjacent to the end of the world itself. It is true, as Kershaw points out, that some of the names of Odin harken back to a deep and uncertain past, one of them being Herian, effectively the leader, or maybe the personification of the ravaging Her, the Koryos, the army itself. I'm not trying to denigrate that notion. But consider the following. We tend to simply assume that all pagan ideas by default predate Christian concepts because the notion of paganism, quote-unquote, itself implies rusticity. And very often, we have to admit, when we're looking for sources of pre-Christian religion, we're looking for the unspoiled, the pure, unadulterated stuff, right? that which shows no trace of Christian influence whatsoever, as if our ancestors lived in total separation from any other cultures but their own. If there ever was such a phase, Scandinavia, in the Iron Age, was certainly not it. It would be foolish to say that the pre-Christian Scandinavian paradigm survived without influence from Christian culture, whether Roman or barbarian, because by the Viking Age, the majority of the Germanic peoples had already been Christian for centuries. Scandinavian paganism survived until the 11th century despite constant contact and exchange of ideas with the profoundly Germanic interpretation of Christianity that had been around since at least the late Roman Iron Age. with the extreme impact of the Roman army on the militarization of the Germanic elites. It would be strange if that influence stopped with the religion that the Romans themselves were adopting at the time. And in fact, we know very well that it didn't stop there, with the conversion of the Goths and the Franks and other Germanic peoples in the 4th and 5th centuries, around the time when the Mead Hall culture starts to really pop off. What is one of the key features of life in the aristocratic hall? Well, poetry would be one of them. While songs of ancient heroes and champions probably goes all the way back to the Indo-European period, some scholars, like Daniel Savborg, have argued that the origins of Norse poetic meter derive from continental Germanic fashions during the migration period, in part due to classical influence. If that is indeed true, then like many other Roman influences, Germanic peoples truly made it their own. I often use the psychedelic style of early Skaldic poetry as an example of a true pagan aesthetic for example. But even though early Skaldic metaphorics and aesthetics display a uniquely pagan worldview, that does not mean that the meter itself was invented by pagans necessarily. See what I'm getting at here? Daniel Savborg is entirely correct in pointing out that our earliest Germanic heroic poems are undeniably From a Christian context. But it's been quite some time since I read the article, so my recollection of his arguments might be a little bit shaky. With our general deficiency in sources for continental Germanic mythology, I don't really think we have enough data to say this or the other for sure. At any rate, none of this really means that Germanic poetry itself was Christian by default, of course. Nor does it really have any adverse implications for the authenticity of, say, Edic poetry as an expression of pagan mythology. It just implies that while some Germanic peoples took to making poems about biblical stories, others used the same meter to create poems about ancient heroes and the deeds and misdeeds of the gods. The only bad idea here is the idea that there was no contact between these two groups. Looking at other Germanic poems like the Heliand or Beowulf, these were composed in a Christian milieu. Beowulf, for example, describes a warrior culture easily mistaken both for its Norse-Pagan aristocratic equivalent and its own pagan ancestry. However, Beowulf not only justifies itself within a Germanic heroic continuum, but also a Christian worldview, in a manner that is in no way alienating to the Christian Anglo-Saxon audience. It is also a valid point to bring up that when Germanic warlords converted to Christianity, how much did they actually understand about Christian theology? We know that the strategy of the church at the time was not to overload barbarian converts with a fine print of Christian doctrine, but to present Christianity in a light that the Germanic elites could appreciate and understand. Christianity had social, political, and military prestige attached to it. That was what interested you, let's say if you were a Frankish prince in the 5th century. Getting people to conceptualize Christ as a powerful Lord was more urgent as far as the missionaries were concerned than getting them to bend their heads around, say, the intricacies of the Trinity. You know, we have got to pick your battles. This led, of course, not only to the Christianization of the Germanic peoples, but to a Germanization of Christianity. Of Christ as dragon slayer and warrior god. Wherever you were in late antiquity, or the early medieval period, in the so-called Dark Ages of Northern Europe, whether pagan or christian. The Mead Hall was the most glorious, most socially prestigious place that a person could be. And though originally probably a sort of pagan institution by default, it may have taken just a little sprinkle of christianity to elevate it into an even higher position. This is when the idea was introduced that if you are truly a man of the elite, you belong there with the figure called by the Anglo-Saxons Drichten, in Frisian drochten, in Old High German Drottin, and Old Norse dröttin, all of which mean something along the lines of the general of the host or the army, effectively the lord. It was the ideal that men of honor should be with their oathsworn lord, who not only bestows his wisdom, but gifts them with gold rings and treasure, commonly called the generous man motif in Germanic poetry. By analogy, Iron Age poets began to use the epithet Drichten about Christ, and the poet of Heliand even describes him as a ring giver, one who showers his men with treasure, not of the earthly kind, but gold from the heavenly hoard. Christ and his disciples are likened to a prince with his retainers, and Judas is the unmanly man, the breaker that Germanic society could not tolerate. The idea is introduced to the elite that being Christian secures you a seat with the greatest lord of them all, the crowned and conquering Jesus Christ, as he was sold to the Germanic peoples. As we all know, not all Germanic cultures converted to Christianity immediately, but that's not for want of exposure to its ideas, which would have traveled across inter-regional networks and alliances, even up to the backwaters of Scandinavia, where it was presumably simply rejected. Until, well, you know... Okay, so how can this be reconciled with Kershaw's research on the Indo-European origins of Germanic warrior religiosity? Well, my friends, Rome was not raised in a day. Nor did Odin simply pop out of the Indo-European invasions, the exact same god as he was to the Vikings, or in the medieval Icelandic texts that describe him. We simply must expect a large degree... Of historical development. And it does not necessarily speak against Kershaw's arguments, as she speaks for a continuity of ancient motifs which are not at all, as far as I can tell, necessarily associated with notions of the afterlife, per se. Rather, the original military Odinic function seems to have been concerned with rites of passage from puberty to manhood, and where these exiles play the cultic role of the ghosts of the ancestral dead. Obviously, this would have some consequences towards the development of Valhalla as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Norse podcast. If you like what you're hearing... And if you're looking to interact with Brutnors in a more direct way, or looking to follow me on social media, or maybe you're just curious about the project, you'll find a link to everything Brutnors related in the show notes below. The link might also take you to the Brutnors Teespring store or Patreon page, do note that all patrons get a 20% discount permanently on shirts, as well as an array of other potential goodies. Among other things, there's the Brute Norse Discord server, a virtual mead hall for the Scandi Futurist Koryos. It's developed into a small but friendly community of great people sharing book and film recommendations, and comparing notes about everything from ecology to folklore and many other things. Members of the Discord community also have a unique opportunity to influence the direction of the podcast, as that is usually where I test drive a lot of my ideas. If you are a patron of Norse but not in the chat, then I'm sad to say you're missing out. And so am I, because I would really like to see your input. On that note, I think that I've been speaking way too long already, so I'm gonna send you on your way, walking backwards into the future.